Donald Gray Barnhouse. Y'all know who he is? He was the pastor at 10th Presbyterian, the historic 10th Presbyterian in Philadelphia. Anybody familiar with that church? Uh, he was the pastor there from 1927 to 1960. You might have heard of James Boyce. Have any of you heard that name? James Boyce followed Barnhouse. Well, Barnhouse was asked one day, he said, Dr. Barnhouse, what would it look like for Satan to take over a city or a town? Now think about that question. Isn't that a wild question? Maybe it was a reporter or someone that's writing a publisher for a book. Um, what would it look like if Satan took over Waco? How would you answer that? Here's how he answered that. He said the streets would be clean. The buildings would always be freshly painted and always well-maintained. He said there'd be no spitting on the sidewalk and no profanity used in public. There'd be no crime and no poverty. There'd be no gambling, no prostitution, no human trafficking, no racism. There'd be no drunkenness. There'd be no uh, addicts. There'd be no homeless wandering and walking the streets. And children would obey their parents, honor their parents. And he said on every Sunday, everyone would be going to church where Christ isn't preached. Wow. I want to welcome you to the first church of seven churches, the church at Ephesus. I want to welcome you to the good church. Please stand for the hearing of God's word. This is from the second chapter of the Revelation to John. To see the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. I know your works, your toil and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place, unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This is the word of our Lord. Nice Please be seated. So, Lord, we ask that you would um, cause us to re-experience this text just like its original place. Would you break through? Jesus, this is the apocalypse. This is the breakthrough. This is the unveiling of you. So, we ask that you would do that. I ask that you would do that for myself. I ask that you would do that for all of us and that we would have a genuine, real, living encounter with you that's personal, that's active, that meets our needs. And we ask this in your name, amen. Okay, so we are about to begin seven messages to seven churches, okay? So, so who cares? <laughs> Seriously, so what? Seven messages to seven churches. Why do we need to listen to some message that was given 2,000 years ago to some church in called Ephesus? 
Why? Well, here's the answer. Seven in the Bible is the number of what? Anybody? Completion, perfection, fullness, right? So here's what we got. So these are seven messages, meaning they are complete messages, perfect messages, comprehensive messages. For seven churches, which means that this is the complete church, the comprehensive church, the perfect church, the universal church. You know what this means? In other words, Jesus is speaking to Ephesus and he's speaking to you. In other words, Jesus is showing up at Calvin's church in Geneva and First Baptist Tbilisi and St. Mary's in Baltimore and Spirit Alive in Beijing and in Redeemer. What's the atmosphere, though, of these seven churches or these seven messages? In other words, what's the feeling? What's the force in this text? How is John experiencing these seven messages? How should we hear them? How should we receive them? How should we experience them? Answer, here it is. Jesus. John is before Jesus on his face. And Jesus has his right hand on him. Now that's a picture. Being overwhelmed by a person, by a person who loves you to the moon and back. That's how John is experiencing these seven messages. He's on his face with the immense, indomitable Lord and Savior touching him. What about, like, the church as a whole? What are these seven messages saying about the church as a whole? What I'm about to say next will shock some of you. Others of you, it's going to offend. And the rest of you are going to be relieved. Here it is. You ready? The church is a mess. Now, I'm a visionary. I'm that guy that loves balloons, loves to see them fly. Now, for some of you, you're like, I knew that all along. But for others of you, you're like, you just popped my balloon. You're new to the church. You think, you think, you have this view of the church that's almost like it's perfect and it's complete and, and it's perfect, right? And it's not. In fact, what this text says is that the church is a mess. Five of the seven churches are in bad shape. Do you see that? The literary structure is fascinating. It goes like this. The first and seventh church is bad. The second and sixth churches are good. These are the only ones that are good. The middle three, bad, worse, bad. Do you see the chiastic structure? Everything's zeroing in on the worst church. Now, it's fascinating. The New Testament Revelation scholar, the, the big one, the one that's like can hurt you that I don't want you to get, but that one out there, if you want one, I do want you to get. This is what he says about this. The significance of this is that the Christian church as a whole is perceived as being in poor condition. Eugene Peterson, in his book on Revelation called Reverse Thunder, he says it this way, the church is a messy family room, and St. John does not apologize for that. 
There are no apologies for this, that the church is a mess. It's not like, oh, I'm sorry, yeah, we, yep, it's a bunch of hypocrites. Uh, yep, these folks are really jacked up. In fact, he says, things are out of order to be sure, but that's what happens when churches are lived in. They are not showrooms, they are living rooms, and if persons living them are sinners, they're going to be clothes scattered about, handprints on the woodwork, and mud on the carpet. For as long as Jesus insists on calling sinners and not the righteous to repentance, churches are going to be an embarrassment to the fastidious. And I had to look that up too, here's what it means. The exacting, the perfecting, the controlling And they're going to be an embarrassment not only to the fastidious, but they're going to be an affront to the upright. And that means those that perceive themselves as being holy and good and righteous, it's always going to be an affront. Remember Elisha's servant? Remember? You know, he's in the cabin in the woods. He's got to go out and do his business. He's yawning, and there's a Syrian army surrounding them, and he freaks out, and he runs inside. Elisha, Elisha, what are we going to do? Remember, that was reality, though. He saw reality. This is an army of reality. This is trouble of reality. The problem was it wasn't all of reality. It was reality for him in the moment, but what he needed to see was something, a fuller reality in the present moment. And that was an army of angels surrounding them all, right? Do you remember this? So reality had its moment, but there was fuller reality needing to be seen. And once he saw the angel's army, changed everything. Now he's like, let's go, right? Before he wanted to put his head in the ground like an ostrich. Now he's strong and bold and brave and courageous. And what Jesus is saying to us, I've got to open your eyes. You've seen part of reality, but you're not seeing all of reality. I need to open your eyes to this fact. The church is for messed up people. The church is for the sick. The church is for people who need a savior. The church is not for those who perceive themselves to be healthy and not for those that perceive themselves to be good and not for those who do not need a savior. And so this is absolutely breathtaking because it's so important for a church to be healthy, for you to be healthy, we must see that we're not. To even have a chance at being healthy, Jesus is saying, in order for reality to actually change and for you to actually become healthy is you have to see that you're not. So how do you do that, though? How does this happen? How, how do you have your eyes open? How do, you, how do we end this desperate, primal need to think of ourselves as good people, to constantly be spinning off versions of ourselves that are not true before God, before others, and especially before ourselves. How do we end this primal need to be better than other people, this deep, deep need to earn love? How do you end that? to become healthy, to actually start loving God and loving people, to actually start being in an ongoing process of renewal 
and change to actually be a lampstand, a light in your home, in your neighborhood, at work, in the city. In other words, how do we move from self-preoccupation to love? That's the question before us this morning. Ephesus is an active church. Do you see that? Look at verse 2. I know your works, your toil, your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. Here's what scholars and pastors say about the church at Ephesus. This is not my words. These are quotes from commentaries, books, on what Ephesus was like. Quote, the church is buzzing with doing. Quote, all kinds of ministries and programs are going on. Quote, they are hardworking, engaged in strenuous and exhausting labor. They are pushing themselves for the kingdom. Quote, it's not comfortable to be, it's not a comfortable social club where people only get, all members are actively involved, all working for the advancement of the kingdom of God. Quote, they are orthodox in their faith. They are committed to sound doctrine, sound teaching. Quote, they love the confessions, the creeds, and the catechisms, end quote. They do not tolerate arrogant, self-appointed teachers who spread damaging doctrinal lies. And they're doing all this incredible stuff, all this fascinating stuff, all this good stuff without getting burned out. Did you see that? Look in verse 3. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Do you know that, like... Maybe the average ministry team leader tenure in this church is two years, three years max, because we just burn out. There's so much to do. There's so much ministry and so much activity and so much energy, and no one's burning out. Ephesus is a center church. It's an anchor church. Sound familiar, the language? For the whole Christian movement at the time, Ephesus planted the other six churches. Daryl Johnson writes in his commentary, by the time, Revelations, the time of Revelation's writing, Ephesus had become the center of the Christian movement. The center having moved from Jerusalem, it went to Antioch. From Antioch, it went to Ephesus. It would later move to Rome and then later to Colorado Springs. Just kidding, end quote. And I love that. That's a good commentary. That's a dude with a sense of humor. <laughs> That's a dude that's breaking down the meaning and also communicating it to you so you get it, right? Here's the list of pastors in chronicle order of Ephesus. Are you ready? It was planted by the Apostle Paul, the Apostle of the Apostles. The next guy that came in was Apollos, who was called the pre... He was the Spurgeon of his day, <laughs> the preacher of preachers. The next one that comes in is Timothy, Paul's right-hand man. Timothy is the first pastor that's not an apostolic pastor, so he is the model for what pastors are supposed to be, pastor of pastors. And then, of course, the last pastor is the last apostle himself, John. Can you imagine... And this is unbelievable, too. Can you imagine what it would be like on a Christmas Eve service with everyone buzzing with expectation and buzzing with energy? This is the birth of Christ, celebrating Christ. There's incredible music awaiting and anticipating the incredible music, Handel, the Messiah, right? Uh, Bach, Hillsong, Getty, right? 
and the scripture readings of going through the, the life of the Christ being promised and fulfilled. And then amidst it all, there's Mary sitting on the front row. So the scripture reading comes to this part. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Can you imagine? It's like you're trying to listen to the text, but everyone's going. You've got the mother of Jesus in your church. Why? Because when Jesus is about ready to give up his last, he thinks of his mom. Son, this is your mom. Mother, this is your son. And John's taking care of Mary. So she goes where he goes. And he has the last pastorate at the church at Ephesus. The church of Ephesus is one of the most influential churches in the history of Christendom. So what happens next, y'all, is absolutely shocking. What happens next just like slicks back the hair. What happens next knocks you off your seat. What happens next is verse 4, but I have this against you. That's pretty stunning. What could Jesus possibly have against this church? I mean, come on. If this church is not healthy, if this church is not successful, what church is I mean, if you were to pull 1,000 pastors in Texas from every theological and traditional stripe, and you were to say something like this, you were to read the characteristics of this church, you were to read the vision and values of this church, you were to read its culture, you were to read its ethos, you were to read the DNA, the, that this is what its DNA was. This is not force. This is what it was like. This was in its blood. This was, this was its chromosomes. This is it. And then you were to say, listen, it's also a center church. Its ministry and its impact is beyond its walls, it's beyond the region, it's, it's influencing all of Christianity. And not only that, it's an anchor church, it's sending out leadership and it has the resources to impact the world. And you were to say to these thousand pastors, I mean, would you like to plan a church like that or be a part of a church like that? No. No, no, I wouldn't. No, of course. You know what everybody would say? I can start yesterday, and I'll do it for free as long as you take care of my coffee per diem. This is an unbelievable church. But it gets creepier. Look at verse 5. Jesus is saying, look, guys, if you don't change, you will cease to be a church. You'll be done as a church. This is the only church Jesus says that to. What did they do, y'all? I mean, seriously. What is so devastating that if it's not a part of your church, your church falls? What could make a church rise and what can make a church fall? What did they do? What happened to them? What happens to us? Here's the answer. You ready? Verse 4. You have abandoned the love you had at first. The literal translation is, is you have abandoned first love. 
Now, there are unbelievable interpretations on this, so I'm just going to give you the right one. It's not worth going through them all. You have abandoned first love. We leave. What do we do? What did the church at Ephesus do? We leave first love. We leave preeminent love. We leave primary love. We leave ultimate love. We leave primary grace. We leave preeminent grace. We leave ultimate grace. We leave Jesus and his salvation. That's why a church stands or falls. In other words, we stop building our lives around Jesus and his salvation. We stop building our lives around the first love, the only love that can reach the bottom of our heart and save it, and heal it, and change it, and shape it, and forgive it, and put it back together again, and drive it out of itself to actually love God and love others. Only first love can do that. First love is used only one other time in the Bible. This is not, this is two occurrences, this is it. And guess who's the one to use it? Take a guess. The Apostle John. And this is what he writes. We love because he first loved us. How do you know when you've left first love? How do you know when you're not building your life around first grace? How do you know when we're not taking our messy life and building it around Jesus and his salvation. By the way, we call this gospel renewal here. How do you know when that's not happening? How do you know when it's not taking place in your life? How do you know when it's, it's, it's in a church-wide reality? How do you know? Well, John's answer is simple, and yet it's, it's very cutting. And so for the next couple of seconds, it's going to be very uncomfortable, but I want you to know I am right there with you. I'm not reading this preaching this as someone outside. I am reading this, preaching this as someone inside. Here's what John says. Here's what Jesus says to John. We know that we've lost first love. We know that we're not building our messy lives around Jesus and his salvation when we do not love. When we do not love God and when we do not love others, when we do not love our children, when we do not love the cashier, when we do not love the person in front of us that's driving like a maniac, when we do not love our, our enemy. We know when we withhold acceptance and relationship from a classmate, from someone who's different from us, from someone who believes different things, from someone who has a different race, from someone that comes from a different country, from someone who's not like us, from someone who is same-sex attracted, if we withhold acceptance and relationship to anyone, we lost, we left, we forsook first love. Here's another one. It's usually not in the books, but I want to say it. We do not love. We've lost first love. You know you've lost first love when you've lost a love for life. 
Isn't that an interesting one? Think about it. Because if we don't love life, what we're doing with life is we're trying to manage it, control it, and play God with it. It's the only other option. We know that we've lost first love when we don't love food, when we don't love friendship, when we don't love work, when we don't love sex, when we don't love a good book, when we don't love a good conversation, when we don't love a sunset, when we don't love helping and serving people because what we're doing instead is we're using them, demanding from them and craving them to give us first love, something they can't do, which is absolutely impossible. We can't love them for their own sake. We try to make a God out of them. That's how we know when we're not building our lives around first love. Alexander White, a Scottish preacher called the greatest preacher of his day in Scotland. His day was the late 1800s to the early 1900s, like 1920. He says, life without first love is life by vinegar. Puckers you, sour, all your taste buds recoil. Maybe we could say something like, it's not just life by vinegar, it's church by vinegar, it's ministry by vinegar, it's reading your Bible by vinegar, it's obeying by vinegar, it's giving by vinegar, it's theology by vinegar, doctrine by vinegar. Sinclair Ferguson, who's another Scottish guy, he's pretty famous too, but he's alive. He says, first love is, life without first love is a metallic spirit. It's mechanical, it's clanky, it's cold, it's metallic. So how do you change? Let's get out of there quick. Good night. How do we change? How do we regain first love? How do you actually love someone else? How do you actually really, truly love God? Really, truly love somebody else? Really, truly are driven out of yourself to do something like that, to actually be a human being? How do you change? This is so important. I'm going to say it really quickly because we're going to move to the punchline of it. But each of the seven messages that are highlighted here are a specific aspect of the original vision. So you have the original vision of Jesus. The seven messages come from this original vision, but each church has its own specific needs and its own specific human condition and its own specific place. And what each of the messages do is that they take an aspect of Jesus and his salvation from this initial vision and apply it to that church to change them. That's what preaching is. That's what life change is all about. It's the gospel actually hitting your heart and changing your life. And we get the example from Jesus himself. So the question is, what's the specific aspect of that initial vision of Jesus and his salvation that the church at Ephesus needs? Answer, the first one is in verse 1. The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. This is the one who holds the seven stars, the one who holds the seven planets, the one who holds the seven angels. In other words, the one who's in control of heaven and earth, the one who holds everything in his hands, holds your heart too. He holds your heart 
in his hands. He is the king, the Lord, the one who has everything down to the finest details in a very personal way, you. He's the only one that can change your heart. That's why there's verse 5. Remember, remember from where you have fallen. You have fallen from the stars. You have fallen in your mixed perception of reality that what you see in your reality is that you're in control. What you see in your reality is you make this Christian life go. What you see in your reality is you've got to become and make yourself holy. What you see in your reality is this, what the what the fuller reality is, he holds you. And this is a game changer. And this is why to remember from the height from which you have fallen is readily admitting you've fallen. Admit that we leave Jesus' love. Admit that we leave his salvation. Admit that we're prone to wander. Lord, we feel it. Prone to leave the God we love. That innate in us is this desire to hold our own life, to be our own savior, to go our own way, to make life work. And when we admit how far we fall, we're admitting that we live life by vinegar, by a metallic spirit, we're admitting that we do not, we do not have the ability in and of ourselves to love God and love others. And that admission is actually the beginning of you loving God and loving others. As the ancients would say, there's no health in us. The way health becomes a part of us is when we admit there's no health in us. That's the way ancient Christianity works. That's the way classic Christianity works. I know it sounds foreign today, but that's the way the Bible works, and that's the way historic Christianity works, that the way up is always the way down, that the way to health is always admitting you're unhealthy, that the way to actually love is to begin to realize you don't love. Look at the second aspect of Jesus. Again, verse 1 who walks among the seven golden lampstands or churches. There's a slight difference here than in the original vision. In the original vision, it goes like this. Jesus in the midst of us. In this specific aspect applied to Ephesus, it's Jesus is walking in the midst of us. Whoa. So walking. And notice this is present tense. So Jesus is presently, right now, walking and moving in your messy life and in this messy church. And he's walking, so he's presently active. So, oh God, open our eyes. What do we need to see? Well, in our present reality, we see this. But in the fuller reality, we see an active Jesus moving in our midst, loving us, attending to us. Oh, man, this, their faith over here needs some restoration. I need to fan the flame. He's cutting the wicks. He's working on us. He's at work in us, corporately, individually. And don't miss what kind of love that he's actively present with. It comes from John in the first chapter at verse 5 where he says, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood. So it's a cross-shaped love. So this is an unearned love. This is an unperformed love. In other words, this is a love that loves you while you're mean. 
is a love that loves you while you're lying. This is a love that loves you while you're lusting. This is a love that loves you while you have this vinegar, metallic spirit that's unloving. He loves you. So, of course, in verse 5, remember, now repent. Repent because no one and nothing can love you like this. Money cannot love you like Jesus loves you. Money makes you earn its love, and it's never enough. Talk to people that have it. Don't talk to me. But I'm told, rumor has it, that when you have it, you always want a little more. It's never satisfying. You never get to the end. Constantly earning its love. Performance can't love you like Jesus. Because your performance is always making you, whether it's athletic, intellectual, whether it's moral, whether it's ideological, whether it's political, whatever the performance is, it always demands that you earn its love. And then when you fail its love, it punishes you. It never forgives. It accuses and condemns. It drives you out. It makes you turn to dust. People can't love you like Jesus loves you. There are moments that we can image that unmerited, unperformed love, but a people's love is just too small. It's like dropping a pea in a pool. It's just going to roll around in there. It's never going to fill you because it's not big enough. So what happens here when we're repenting, what we're doing, it's like we're retrusting. We're remembering, but now we're we're remembering first love. We're remembering first grace. We're remembering unperformed. And we're remembering he's moving and walking and in our midst, constantly, actively present, loving you now with that love, experiencing that love now in a real way. And when that happens, it's like we, we retrust him. We, re, we get refreshed and renewed by him. And we start building our life around Jesus and his preeminent love. Jesus in his ultimate grace, and we get renewed, and we get healed, and we get reached, and our hearts get filled, and that's the way we change. And then what we end up doing is that turning to him, we're saying, you can't love me like that, to whatever you need to say that to. And that's a good thing to say. Sometimes I say it out loud when I'm running, and I wonder if the cows notice. Now, you can't love me like that. Reputation, you can't love me. That helps me. People's approval, you can't love me like Jesus can love me. I will not trust you. It's repentance. It's restructuring. It's retrusting. It's renewal. Look at the last part of verse 5. This is important. Do the works you did at first. This is not new works. People are going to try to tell you these are new works. These are not new works. This is do the same works. Jesus is saying, look, I want you to do the same works you've been doing. Just simply do the next thing. Mom, change the diaper. Dad, pick up the, drive the kid to practice at five in the morning and love it. Be home and have a meal together. 
Get involved in your church. Get involved in a community group. Pray for people. Start opening our eyes to all the people that are around us. Do the things that this incredible church is doing. Continue to do them. Except this time now, do them in light of first love, which changes everything. So it goes like this. Instead of all of our service and ministry and activity, doing it to earn love. Earn love from God, earn love from others, and earn love from yourself. Or from some crazy law or expectation, like the law of thinness. The law of thinness will love you if you're thin. So if you're not thin, it doesn't love you. It punishes you. Or the law of capability. Well, if, you're, if, I'm, if I'm a capable person, that means I've got to juggle six kids, and I've got to have a full-time job, and I've got to, because I'm capable, I'm gonna, the capable law is going to love me. How about the busy law? The busy law. I love the busy law. The busy law is like, I am something if I'm busy. The busy law will love me. The point is, instead of all the service and ministry to earn love from God, from others, from yourself, or some law, you do it now because you're already loved. You do it out of joy and delight freedom and gratitude you already have what you're looking for and now you can simply do it the next thing the way luther says it he says look god doesn't need your works people do simply do the next thing love people you're free now to do that because You've been first loved. You've been indomitably loved because preeminent, unearned, unperformed grace and love is yours. Man, y'all, first love changes everything.